may feel like you've just been sprayed in the face with a fire hydrant this morning, um, trying to keep up with everything. Um, but let me just encourage you, sort of big picture, read through the bulletin, process what's happening each week coming up. Um, it's, it's actually fairly normal with the structure of our ministry. Um, and just keep in mind why we do all of these different programs and events. The purpose behind each and every one of these things is so that every person here can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the big picture goal. We want to speak the truth in love, understand God's word better, demonstrate love to one another through practicing the New Testament one another commands, and then we'll all grow and be conformed to the image of Christ. So that's the goal of each of these things. So with that goal in mind, let me just encourage you to go and look at what's happening in the bulletin and sign up and participate this coming fall. I do not think that you will be disappointed or sad that you did. I think you'll actually uh, have a great experience and grow in the Lord. So open up to Psalm 2 this morning. Psalm 2 this week, and then next week we're going to jump into a new series on the book of Ephesians. But we'll be in the Psalms this morning, Psalm 2 specifically. I was a, a history minor in college, uh, so I took quite a few history classes. I actually started as a history major, uh, was going to major in that and study a lot of history, and then decided to back off into a minor, not because I don't like it, um, but I decided to minor in, or major in Bible instead, which has worked out reasonably well um, for me. So, uh, but one of the things that, as someone who has spent some time studying history, I'm no expert at all. Having a minor does not make you an expert, but I enjoy it. Uh, still, still like to read history and uh, understand history better. But one of the misconceptions about the study of history is that it's basically just looking at dates of when things happened and putting those dates in the proper order. So knowing the year and perhaps the month and the day of when a particular event happened, and if you can put those in order, then you can be pretty good at history. So and even as I talk about and use the word history this morning, some of you have probably already turned me off because it just sounds boring to you. And I think that that is a misconception of what the study of history is, is all about. Uh, my favorite part about taking the history classes that I did, and I took all sorts of them uh, on Napoleon, I took a class on the French Revolution and Napoleon, took a class on the Renaissance, uh, one on African history, uh, just all sorts of classes. And uh, there's so much more than, than dates to history. My favorite part of history is understanding the story that is developing through a particular historical event, uh, a, a country, uh, a series of events or whatever. There is a story aspect to it. And all of us love stories and we, we enjoy getting caught up in a good story. And that's very true of the study of history. When you look at uh, different events in history, different groups of people, you start to discover that there's influences happening that are shaping people and shaping events, and then people got swept up in those influences and those events, and they responded in a particular way, and it's always interesting to see how people responded to events, and then changes were brought about into the world, and you can sort of track things along and see why we're in the state that we're in today based on what's happened, and it all is part of one big developing story. 
And it really is quite exciting when you start to understand and, and get into it. It is exciting, and, and it does make a good story. So even if you've never read a history book in your life and you are horrified at the thought of taking a class on some aspect of history or studying history or reading a book on history, I would say to you this morning that the study of history is a necessary part of your Christian life. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. I don't mean that you have to understand the French Revolution and Napoleon or the history of Africa to be a good Christian, but I would say that studying and knowing history is necessary for your worship of God. Now, I mean in particular biblical history and the story that is unfolding in the Bible because really that is, it is history. And all history, and particularly biblical history, is just the explanation of what God has done. It's his works that you're looking at when you study biblical history. We worship God for who he is and for what he's done, and history is the study of what God has done, especially in the Bible. And so we want to we wanna understand that, and we want to understand the story that is developing through what God has done, and then respond to that with worship and praise for the work that he has done. And so our psalm this morning, Psalm 2, is going to give us a basic history lesson. That's what it is. It's a basic lesson on world history, and I think it's vital for every Christian to understand this lesson, History 101 is what we're calling it this morning, and when you properly understand the work that God has done in history, big picture, then you will properly worship him, and you'll respond to his work with praise and adoration. So that's what we're going to look at. This morning, Psalm chapter 2, of course, is paired with Psalm 1, and that's what we started to look at last week was Psalm 1. And in Psalm 1, if you look at the beginning of Psalm 1, you see there the word blessed, blessed is the man. And then at the end of Psalm 2, if you look down at the last phrase in Psalm 2 and verse 12, you see blessed are all who take refuge in him. And what this means is that these two psalms are meant to be read together. They're bookended by the same word, blessed. And this word doesn't just mean approved by God, it means someone who's living the good life, who's living well, and who's flourishing. And so what Psalm 1 teaches us is that the good life comes to those who meditate on God's word, verse 2. Blessed is the man in verse 1, and then verse 2 of Psalm 1, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then Psalm 2 complements that picture of meditation on the Word of God and says, here is the subject matter with which you should be meditating. You should be thinking about the work of God in history and what he's done and the unfolding of his plan, which culminates in his son and in his king. And when you consider him, you'll live the good life if you find refuge in him, because he's the main subject of all human history. Everything is ultimately about him. And so when we talked last week about meditating on the Word of God, this week in Psalm 2, we're going to talk specifically about the subject matter of that meditation. Here's what you should think about. Here's what, what you should consider. And the thing that you should be thinking about is the main features of God's plan that he's unfolding throughout history. And I told you before, this is an introduction to the book of Psalms, and so what you're going to find throughout the rest of the Psalms are these themes. 
The very things we're going to talk about in Psalm 2, as you on your own read through the Psalms, you'll start hopefully to see these themes popping up again and again. And so the whole book of Psalms goes back to these chapters, and the author wants you to live the good life by thinking about God's word, specifically the work that God has done in history through his son, through his king that he has installed, and then to return the praise back to him for what he has done. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see four parts of God's plan for history. Four parts of God's plan for history that, here's what these, plan, these parts are going to do for us, they're going to supply our meditation on his word and call us to submit to his king. So four parts of God's plan for history that supply our meditation on his word, it's the subject matter, and they call us to submit to God's king. So you can notice the twin responses there of meditating and submitting, thinking about and coming under the authority of. And you can see the first part of this plan of God, the first part of world history here that he discusses is found in verses 1 to 3, and it's the rejection of God's authority. So we don't have an author here. If you look at the beginning of Psalm 2, there's no author listed. But if you read in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, you discover that this psalm was actually written by David. So there's a good reason to think Psalm 1 was written by David as well. And David was God's chosen king. He was anointed by God. And of course, if you read about his life, you know David faced all sorts of opposition to his position as God's king. He faced opposition before he was king, after he was anointed, and once he was installed as the king and was reigning, he continued to face opposition throughout his life. And so this psalm, I think, is David meditating on the opposition that he continually faced as God's king. And here's what he saw, and then he wrote about it. Let me read verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And see, opposition has always been a part of life on this earth, at least since Genesis chapter 3, hasn't it? God created the world. We just talked about this in our series on Genesis 1 to 3, but God created the world good. And he created the world for mankind to have dominion over it, for Adam and Eve to spread out through their children over the entire world and to take dominion and to rule over the world in God's place as his vice regents. But ultimately, that dominion was given by God, and they were to rule under God. And so God was the ultimate authority over the world. But of course, you know the story, Adam and Eve chose to sin, And in pride and arrogance, they tried to usurp God's rule. and They tried to establish their own moral order. They tried to rule the world apart from God and his influence. They wanted to do it on their own. And as you continue to read in Genesis, you see that continuing to happen. Men are constantly resisting the authority of God. They're trying to do harm to God's people. They're reacting in violence to one another. Cain kills Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Before Noah, the flood happens. There's violence that fills the earth as a a very reason for why God destroys the world through a flood. 
At the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, the people come together. They build a tower to make a name for themselves and not for God. They're resisting his authority and want to do it on their own. You can see later on, Esau hates Jacob. The nation of Egypt murders all the children born in Israel to try to bring God's people in subjection to them. They burden the people with slavery. If you continue reading, there's constantly threats and opposition to God's people. You get to the time of David, and the Philistines are always trying to oppose Israel and trying to destroy God's people. And the list goes on and on and on of people who are opposed to God and his purposes and trying to do violence to them. And so David thinks about this. He meditates on this, and he considers it, and he's amazed by it. Because what you read here in verse 1, why do the nations rage? This is not a question of careful inquiry. David's not confused by this and wondering why this happens. This is a question of amazement. How in the world are people doing this? This is insane that they're doing That's this. That's what David is saying here. Are you kidding me? People are raging against God's authority. And look who's involved in this, verses 1 and 2. It's the nations raging. It's the peoples plotting, conspiring. It's the kings of the earth, and it's the rulers of the earth. It involves everyone, entire nations systematically opposed to God's purposes. It involves peoples, individuals. But at the height here, it involves kings, and it involves political authorities and rulers. They have set themselves in opposition to God and his purposes. This opposition is organized, it's systematic, and it's led by people who are arrogant, arrogant earthly authorities. And who's it against? Look at the end of verse 2. It's against the Lord and against his anointed. These people are opposed to God and they're opposed to his anointed. Now, God's anointed, of course, would have been David, the one writing this, but it also would have been the line of kings that came from David and ruled over the nation of Israel. God's plans and purposes in the Old Testament were centered on the nation of Israel. It's easy to pick that up as you read the Old Testament. And in particular, they were centered on the king in Israel. He was the representative of the people. He was the one who ruled in God's place and under God's authority. And so the nation of Israel was the center of God's plans in the Old Testament, and they were to be the people who God did his work among, and then they were to be a light to the nations. They were the starting point. And so the pagan nations, the rulers, are frustrated with God, and they're frustrated with his plans through David and through his anointed in the Old Testament. And why in particular are they frustrated? Look at verse 3. They tell us here. Here's what they want to do. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here's the problem. They see God's authority as burdensome. They see God's reign as troublesome to their own plans. They feel restricted. They feel like God is getting in the way of what they really want to do and how they want to live life. And so what they want is they want to be completely free from any and all obligations to a higher authority, to the God who created them. And there's a word for that. It's called autonomy. 
They want to be autonomous. And this is the same attitude that the serpent demonstrated in Genesis 3. And it's the same attitude that Adam and Eve ultimately fell into as they trusted the words of the serpent. Autonomy. And in many ways, this is the engine that drives and empowers all sin, isn't it? It's a desire to be free from God's authority. It's the desire to be my own authority. I don't want to submit to what God wants me to do and how he wants me to live and his authority. I want to define my own path in life. I know better than God. And that's what these people are saying here. And this autonomy is expressed all around us. It's expressed throughout the world as sinful people try to throw off the rule and the reign of God. Now, it's very easy to sit here and to look out there and to think and to point our fingers at other people and think of politicians who are kings and rulers to think of public figures, celebrities who live their lives in rebellion against God, it's easy for us to look and point and say, those people are what this verse is talking about here. They're the ones being described here. But I would challenge you this morning, each of us were born with a desire to live autonomous of God, to live apart from his rule and reign. And each of us has to wrestle. Even if you're a believer in Christ, you're continuing to wrestle with this desire to pursue autonomy in your own life. And so I would encourage you and challenge you to ask this question. In what ways do I see God's rule over me as restrictive and burdensome? I don't want it. Back off, God. I've got this in this area. I don't want to obey your word. I don't want to trust your word. It's constraining to me. I would rather do it in this area in my way. How do I ignore what God has said and carve out my own guiding principles to live by? This is how I live my life, as opposed to how God calls us to live our lives. And so this is the heart of man's predicament here in verses 1 to 3. And this is what David saw. And he was amazed by this. And he was amazed by this because of how he knew God would respond to this sort of autonomous desire. And that's what we find is our next part of God's plan. It's the response of God's plan. And the contrast here is striking. You've got earthly kings... Those who have a realm on earth here, a very limited, small realm, trying to throw off the authority of who? Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens. I mean, can you imagine the difference there? The one who sits, sitting meaning he's enthroned, he's sitting on his throne on high, reigning over everything, and you've got these merely earthly kings who imagine that they can throw off his authority and ignore his sovereignty and his power and his glory. And so God sees these mortal earthly kings coming together, organizing nations against his authority. And what does he do? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God's response is, 
It's hilarious. That may shock you and surprise you. But the reason for that is because it's hilarious because they're earthly kings. Their authority is limited and their authority is given to them by the sovereign God who sits enthroned in the heavens. And he laughs because the victory is so lopsided that to think that you could assault God's authority is comical. To think that you could somehow get out from under his right to rule and reign is hilarious. And so in one sense, there's, there's an appropriate response here of laughter from God. It's like watching a single soldier armed with a BB gun go up against the entire might of the United States Army. It's crazy. It's never going to work. It's hilarious to think about. But God not only laughs, his laughter turns into something else. Look at verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. He thinks what they're doing is crazy. He mocks them for it, but his laughter turns to wrath over their pursuit of self-rule. It's ridiculous. But it doesn't stop there. He doesn't just laugh at it and mock sin. Instead, God rightly responds to this rebellion and he holds them accountable for it. And he responds with the holy and righteous fury And that fury should terrify any sinner, anyone who's opposed to God's purposes and plans. It terrifies them, and it should terrify them when they consider the king who sits enthroned in the heavens. And so in verse 3, you've got the people saying what they want to do. And now in verse 6, you've got God saying what he's going to do in response to their rebellion. Verse 5, and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, and here's what he says in verse 6, as for me, so he's saying, I've seen what they're doing, now here's what I'm going to do. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now this seems like an odd response in some ways. I mean, God laughs, he has anger over their rebellion against him, and his response is that he's going to put a king on Zion. Seems odd, but keep in mind, this is part of God's overall plan for the world, and it's part of his overall response to man's rebellion and man's sinfulness. Remember, all the way back in Genesis 3, God responded to Adam and Eve's sin by giving them a promise that he would send one who would crush the head of the serpent. And then after that, his plan of redemption slowly moves forward through Abraham and the promises that he made to Abraham and ultimately to the nation of Israel that came from Abraham, and ultimately found some fulfillment in his promises to David through a kingly line. And so God's response to man's rebellion is to call the nation of Israel out from among the nations to choose them as his own, to place them in the promised land, and then to put a king, God's chosen king, over them to rule and reign over them as their light to the nations. And that's how God responds to man's rebellion. He puts his king in Zion. Now, Zion is a very familiar word to most of us, but Zion was actually a city captured by David in 2 Samuel 5, right before God made his covenant promises to David. 
And so David solidified and secured his reign as God's chosen king over Israel by capturing this city and setting it up as David's city. And so once he had done that and solidified his reign, in 2 Samuel 7, God comes to David and makes these covenant promises to him. And the covenant promises that God made ultimately said, David, one of your descendants is going to reign over the entire world and fulfill my original purpose and plan for the world by humankind taking dominion, and he's going to reign as my son. Listen to a couple of these promises in 2 Samuel 7. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so here in Psalm 2, God says, I'm going to set my king, a descendant of David, according to my covenant with David, on Zion, and he calls Zion his holy hill. It's set apart. That's what holiness means. It's set apart for God's purposes and plans. It's the place where God's rule and his reign is going to begin and to move forward to cover the entire world. And so this is what God said he's going to do in response to human rebellion and sin. And it's in direct contradiction to the claims of these kings, these pagan kings and nations. And this response brings us to our third part of God's plan, which is when we find out what the king himself actually says in response to this plan from God. So we've seen the rejection of God's authority as part of God's plan for history, the response of God's plan to set his king on the throne in Zion, and then thirdly, the rule of his king. Here's what God has in store for his king, and here's how the king responds In verse 7, I, the king is speaking now, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, you read those words, and I know it's so easy to jump forward and think, well, he's talking about Jesus. And it's easy to do that because that's what the New Testament does. The New Testament quotes these words and says they find fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll get there, but we're not going to get there yet. David was writing these words based on God's covenant promises to him. And he was saying, this is going to be something that all of my descendants should affirm. This is something that the kings in the line of David would have spoken and responded with at their coronation ceremony. When they were installed as the king, they would have said these things. Now, of course, All of this in complete fulfillment is not true of the descendants of David that we read about in the Old Testament, but it sets the hope and the expectation that there will come a descendant of David who will fulfill all of these promises in total. And so you see in verse 7, he says, you are my son. Well, of course, the descendants of David in the Old Testament weren't the divine son of God, but they were his representative authority on earth. But they weren't the complete fulfillment of this. But this was spoken on their coronation day. And then what God promises in verses 8 and 9, not completely fulfilled in the Old Testament kings, 
but you'll see fulfilled later in Christ. Verse 8, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so the expectation is set here that ultimately God's response to the rebellion of man is that all the nations of the earth will come under the rule and the reign of a descendant of the Davidic king of David. There will come a king who will fulfill God's promises to Abraham, bless all the nations, the families of the earth. He won't, this king that comes in the line of David won't just rule over the promised land as his inheritance, but his inheritance will be the whole world, all the nations of the earth. And these are the nations that are opposed to him. He will come to rule and reign over them. He'll bring blessing to some, and he'll bring judgment to many. I mean, look how it's phrased in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Ultimately, the rebellion that we read about in verses 1 to 3 can't last. Their opposition to God and his purposes will be singled out and will be crushed forever by the authority of the anointed Lord. And so you've got this expectation here and you've got these words being spoken by the kings who came from David in his in his line, when they're, core, when they're installed as king at their coronation ceremonies. But remember how this unfolded in the life of Israel. I mean, after David, things went awry pretty quickly in the nation, didn't they? It doesn't take too long. David's reign is successful. Solomon's is successful for most of his reign. And then it sort of peters out at the end. And then after that, we see king after king come to the throne and they take this mantle and they're installed as a Davidic king. They're God's authority on earth, the son of God in one sense. And then they fail over and over again. And they sin and they reject God's authority just like the pagan kings do. And they act like the pagan kings in so many ways. And eventually the entire nation is carried away into exile and there's no Davidic king sitting on the throne at all. And there certainly isn't a king whose reign looks like verses 8 and 9 at all. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Well, that just wasn't true of the Davidic kings in the Old Testament. And so what we realize is that all of the kings that we read about in the Old Testament were shadows And they were shadows that were pointing forward to a true Davidic king who would come, who would take up the mantle that is set down here as the Son of God and have full and final authority over the nations to bring judgment and to bring blessing. And that's exactly how the New Testament understands the coming and the work of Jesus Christ. Listen to Acts 13. This is Paul preaching. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. His resurrection is his installment, his coronation as king. But what's interesting here 
is that we don't yet see verses 8 and 9 played out under the authority of Jesus. He's not reigning from Mount Zion, God's holy hill, over the entire earth. And so it looks like part of this is there, and the New Testament attributes his enthronement as king, the Davidic king, in his resurrection and ascension. But we don't yet see verses 8 and 9 coming. They're not here. And that time is still in the future. Listen to Revelation 19 and how Jesus is talked about here. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, listen to this echo of Psalm 2, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so what you've got here is you've got the initial installment of Jesus as king, but the full and final fulfillment of his reign is still to come in the future. But it will come. And so what this means for you and I is that you and I live in between, don't we? We're at this funny moment in history where Jesus is in heaven reigning, but yet we don't see the full fulfillment of these promises to him and to us ultimately The nations of the earth, the rulers, are still operating as if they're in charge, as if verses 1 to 3 are where they live, that they can throw off God's authority. Many people individually are still operating that way. Most people are. And they don't realize what has happened. They don't realize that he's the king, and they don't realize that this picture in Revelation 19 is coming. And Jesus is going to ride up on his white horse with the armies of heaven And he's going to crush every form of opposition and rule with a rod of iron. He is the true and final king. And so we live in this time in between. So the question is, what do we tell people? What do we tell these kings? What do we tell the nations who are living in rebellion against this king? We know he's the king and we know he's coming back with his rod of iron. So what do we tell them in the meantime? We tell them. You better respond appropriately, and you better find refuge in God's Son. And that's our last part of God's plan, verses 10 through 12. Find refuge in God's Son. Here's the summary response, and this is absolutely necessary, isn't it? Verse 10, now, therefore, because of what's going to happen, because of his authority, because he rules and reigns. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. You better think about this and think about what you're doing and how you're living. Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. You can see here that this call is specifically addressed to those who are discussed in verse two, the kings and the rulers of the earth. They've rebelled against God's true authority And they're living this way. But notice here too, it's a call to repentance and it's a call of grace, isn't it? 
they still have an opportunity to turn. It's an invitation of grace. Be wise. Turn from your rebellion and your autonomous ways of living. You haven't been cut off yet. There's still opportunity of grace. You can humbly submit to God's authority. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So verse 10 says, be wise. And verse 11 describes to us what that wisdom looks like. Serve the Lord, worship him, humbly submit to his rule and reign. Rather than worshiping your own autonomy and your own perceived authority, you must fall before God in submission because he's the king. And this looks like coming to him with joy and trembling. I love that. Such a beautiful description of worship, isn't it? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We don't often associate joy with Fear to the point where you're shaking. Those two things seem to be in opposition to one another. And what what he's describing here is he's describing someone who comes into God's presence, into submission to God's authority with joy and with singing, with the recognition that this good king has extended his grace to me and brought me into a relationship with him. And I come before him with joy. And yet at the same time, I recognize that this king who I'm Worshiping is the enthroned one in the heavens. And he is the king who will return with the armies of heaven and rule with a rod of iron. He rules the entirety of the universe. And so I come into, him, into his presence appropriately with awe and with respect and godly fear. And as I come into his presence, verse 12, I cannot respond properly and appropriately to God's authority without Submitting to the rightful king. Verse 12, kiss the son. Here's what the kings need to do. Kiss the son, pay homage to the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. God does not negotiate. Pay homage to the son, bow before him. He's the rightful king. And I want you to notice here that The last two lines of this fit very well with what we saw at the end of of Psalm 1. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. If you go back to verse 6 of chapter 1, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Their end, the end of the wicked is to perish. And the warning here is respect the son, submit to the son, lest you too perish in the way. And submitting to the Son ultimately is summarized at the end of verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Find your life in him. Find your happiness in him. Find the good life in him. Come to him, repent of your sins, and turn to him and understand that he is what you need. You need to find refuge in him. And of course, all of that ultimately means meditating on God's word, and his work in history through his son. And all of that is found here in the scriptures, in the Psalms. And that's where the good life comes from. So, these are the basic 
themes of God's plan worked out in history. You've got rebellion against God's authority, God's response of installing his king, the plans that he has for his king to rule and reign over everything, and then our response to that is to find refuge in his son, in his king. Humbly submit to him, fall before him in worship and joyful fear. And that's my prayer for us this morning that we all would find ourselves not in verses 1, 2, and 3 of Psalm 2, rejecting God's authority and trying to live on our own, but we would find ourselves in verse 12, paying homage to the Son, rejoicing in our fear before Him as the sovereign of the universe and finding our refuge in Him because there's nowhere else we can go. He's the King and should be honored as such. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning acknowledging who you are and acknowledging the plans that you have that are already in motion for all of human history. And we're caught up in the middle of this story that you are working out. And we want to recognize our place in this story that we live in between your enthronement, Lord Jesus, at the right hand of the Father and your return when you will come to judge the nations, to strike them down and to rule with a rod of iron over those who have rejected you and rebelled against you. And yet in the meantime, Lord Jesus, you offer grace and an invitation to turn from our wickedness and to turn to you in humble submission. And so I pray for anyone here this morning who is seeking to live life on his or her own apart from you, Help them to recognize where they stand and the precarious nature of their their situation. They are a heartbeat away from standing before you as the sovereign judge of the universe. And standing before you and facing you as a judge without the refuge of your son that has been freely offered. What a terrifying situation to find ourselves in. But Lord, for those of us who have found refuge in the Son, we rejoice this morning with trembling. We come into your presence appropriately in the name of Jesus to worship you and honor you because of who you are, because of what you've done, because you are the rightful King of the universe. Thank you for all you've done, Father. Thank you for who you are, Lord Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.